Captain Officer James Clark Ross, in charge of the mothership Obedia, was right over the giant trench of the Charles Gibbs fracture, staring fiercely down into a canyon far deeper than anything on land, a void perhaps two miles deep. Con, we've tracked the sperm whales to feeding depth. Switch on the floodlights. As the trench lights came on, on the rover sub Barracuda, a rookie navigator speaks up. Wow, I've seen pics of it on Sea Goggles is in his element, computers and submarines. But it looks so much more jagged and mysterious here, and I wasn't expecting the giant squid to be so plentiful. Why aren't they even trying to evade the sperm whales? He was addressing the marine biologist on board, Darwin. There are several theories, but mostly safety in numbers. They seem to respond to the diving sounds of the whales. When it's just one or two, they go about their usual business, but when three or more in a pod descent, the squid flock. We're still gathering data. As he was speaking, the captain noticed an anomaly. Com, I'm picking up echoes out of my visual. What have you got? The comms officer, Jane, on Abelia, was quick to answer. She knew the captain well. It's probably the comms sub-captain. Delivery day today, don't forget. The captain chuckled. <laughs> Fresh meat. The biologist was finishing his maneuvers with the external arms. Okay, captain. We've probably got enough tissue plug samples for now. Okay, switch back to sonar. Anything strange today, Doc? You took much longer than usual. Yeah, I got an exceptionally large female in the tube, and it took quite a lot of coaxing to get her out. Had to sacrifice the shark we caught earlier. Got a bit messy. Looks like she's in season two. Lots of big guys waiting on her. So I guess that would explain her reluctance. I know the feeling. Right, I'm tired, and I have to back for a conference patch in 30 minutes with those centenarians, okay? They think they know everything, but let's get back there. Finish up. The biologist took a sharp intake of breath. I think we may be delayed a little, Captain. Why? Look out back. Turn on the high-res beam. I've got a feeling we're not the only one being watched. As he did, the crew fixed their gaze on the rear monitor, and the biologist expanded the picture. It was a sonar scan like that of a baby in a womb. Only what was staring back was a gigantic eye. Swiveling up and down, taking the whole of Barracuda in and processing across its retina. And then it just disappeared and vanished into thin water. The captain was the first to speak. What in the name? What is that thing? No clue. Isn't it on echo? No, it isn't. Calm. Turn those floodlights back on again. Wow. You see that, Captain? Okay, let's not overreact. We have it on disk. The pressure wave monitors will track it out of this trench trigger the cams. Let's not speculate. I'm heading back. 
John, you and I have toyed around uh, for quite a while um, with the idea of writing something together. In fact, I think maybe 10 or ten or so years ago, we exchanged emails um, and writing. You wrote a paragraph, I'd write a paragraph, and they were always kind of based on adventurous travels uh, into deep jungles with big animals and all the rest of it. But um, uh, you came up with the idea of, uh, particularly with your interest in, in Under the Ocean, in us writing about life maybe a hundred years hence where potentially humans could live under the sea. And I really like that idea. Well, yeah, the humans living under the sea was visited by Jacques Cousteau in the early 60s. And there was a, a fashion then for building small villages under the sea. There's there's the remains of one in the Red Sea where Jacques Cousteau built it in, the, I think, early 60s. And uh, since then, there's not really been much done. Recently, I was um, asked to do some research about it for a potential film, which didn't come off. But uh, that led me to understand where we are at at the moment. There is, in fact, only one place in the world which is constantly used as an underwater habitat, and that's called Aquarius, which is off Florida. I've dived on Aquarius, and it's a really interesting place. Uh, but it's getting a little bit old, and I think, in general... People need to think about living underwater again. What, what, tell me about the Jacques Cousteau thing. How deep was that? Do you know? Well, all these habitats tend to be in the shallows, and that's for a good reason, because if they're inhabited by people and they're open to the outside in that there's a moon pool where you can just dive into the pool and you can go outside, then they will be at the pressure of the outside, which, let's say that's at 25 metres, is quite considerable. If you stay at 25 metres for any period of time, say over 80 minutes, you start to get saturated with nitrogen in your blood. And that can cause problems if you come up suddenly, as people know, you get the bends. In fact, if you stay there for a day or so, you get completely saturated, and it will take you, you know, the best part of a day to come back to the surface again. So there's some pretty serious safety considerations even living at 25 metres. The other way to do it is, is not to live at the ambient pressure and you seal it off. So you're basically like in a spaceship where you're sealed off from the outside. At that point, you can just have one atmosphere inside the cabin, which is fine, but it means that you have great difficulty getting outside into the ocean, which sort of defeats the object because you're remote from it. So the best types of habitats are perhaps to be open to the outside and in shallow water. Well, the, the, lo the lovely thing about this idea, of course, is as we're talking 100 years hence, neither you nor I uh, will be around, but our imaginations can speculate. Uh, and uh, although you're being um, very accurate in the descriptions of what limits us at the minute, the thing I love about this idea is, particularly the way I've written some of it is, you know, for example, we could never at the minute observe sperm whales at the depth that they actually go hunting. So I uh, like the idea of us being down there in a craft, which, by the way, isn't claustrophobic, isn't tiny, isn't limited by all the pressures. And I know you've been down there and dived like that. I just love the idea of us being able to really explore uh, in an uninhibited fashion. And what is it that we would see down there? Do you like that idea? I do like that idea. And I, I, it comes to the idea of whether you think science fiction should have any basis in reality or whether it has um you know and as you say of course things change and, and and you know there's there's research on 
trying to get people to breathe directly through liquid, pouring liquid into their lungs. In fact, there's a scene in The Abyss, which is James Cameron's film, where somebody drinks a whole lot of um, oxygenated liquid, and they're able to breathe like that. It, it sounds pretty horrific in some ways, because, you, you know, you'd gag for one thing. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got some guinea pigs in the back here. I don't oh, there's, I, I just got to sign it. I just gonna say it's, they, they sound they, they sound like zebras on the African plains. Lovely little they, moment. They, they, right. they, uh, <laughs> they, it's so cold outside. They've had to come into my uh, my office shed. Yes. Okay. Anyway, keep keep, um, keep keep diving through the deep with the guinea pigs. Yeah. So uh, I I do think that you have to have some basis in in what's known reality if you want to make something that is authentic. Um, so, uh, you know, while some science fiction books fudge these things, and I think there's a reasonable case for fudging, they do have some basis in reality. And, uh, you know, we can foresee what some of the technologies that might happen. Well, look, that's a good partnership. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy to use my imagination such as it is. And, and you can keep us right on some of the facts. Now, I won't allow you to get too serious. But you obviously have the big benefit over me and of many people in that you have you have dived. But look, let's let's uh, deal with some of the the the, the facts. Um, the 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 planet is is really known as the blue planet because it's mostly ocean, isn't it? Yes, I mean it's practically three quarters, seventy one percent water, and it is unique in the solar system, most likely in that it has the most water of any planet. Per size, that's probably not true, but but uh, in absolute terms, the Earth, planet Earth, has the most water in the solar system, and that is not a coincidence. And I get the impression that although we do exploit it for food um, and other resources, I, I, I suspect we're just using the tip of the iceberg. I mean, how deep are the oceans, John, and how unexplored are they, would you say? I believe that uh, most of the oceans are not explored. That's that's the truth of the matter. We tend to uh, explore around the coasts, but the deeper water, which can be anything up to eight miles deep, if you go to the deepest point of the Marianas Trench, is um, is phenomenally deep. And the average depth of the sea, I think, is about two or three miles. So uh, it, it, that area is pretty inaccessible and accounts for perhaps 90% of that 70%. So you could say over half the world is unexplored. Eight miles deep is is very, very difficult to get your head around. Have there even been unmanned submersibles get to that depth? Yeah, the uh, Trieste um, went down to the Marianas Trench, which is one of the deepest areas that we know of. Uh, in 1960, uh, Picard uh, was the captain, and they went in a bathysphere, which is a very thick sphere of metal maybe a couple of feet thick um, 60 centimeters of pure steel and with a one porthole in it i think it was about two meters across so barely two men could fit inside these two men went down to the marianas trench in 1960 and uh, above them they were under a bag of petroleum which is um neutrally buoyant in water and they had six thousand liters of petrol basically above them which helped them float down gently and also come back to the surface. And that's how they did it. It was, it was a, a, a vessel called the Trieste, which was built in Italy. Mm. We I think I've today, seen photographs of it, yeah. 
yeah, I, I think um, Cameron and Co. recently uh, did something similar, but I don't know if it was on the scale of the Trieste. And uh, so they went down, I think, about 20,000 feet down the, the uh, side of the bathysphere started leaking and a spray of water came right across a jet of water. It must have been a fine film. And they had to make the decision as to whether to go up or go down. And they decided to go down and hope it stopped because of the pressure. And it did. Uh, so they went all the way down to the bottom and they looked out the porthole and they looked onto this seabed and what they saw was mud and a flatfish, one single flatfish, which was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, that, uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that in uh, in our um, <clears throat> scientific knowledge in the future that we're not going to discover all kinds of weird and wonderful things and, and possibly, uh, you know, in, enormous creatures. Yeah, there's a lot there, I think, that we haven't discovered. We've in recent times uh, got inklings of the giant squid, which is a phenomenal animal, probably about 40 feet long, um, called Archaeotuthis. We've known about them for years because there's been legends of krakens, which are probably these giant squid, but also because their beaks, which are the hard parts of their mouths, don't dissolve in the stomachs of sperm whales. Sperm whales eat giant squids, and uh, the only thing left when they've eaten them is the beak. And so you can see uh, if in the days of whaling, when they dissected the sperm whales in their stomachs, these giant beaks of Archaeotuthis, the giant squid. That's just an example of an animal that we've not really properly seen and we know that lives in the deep. I uh, am acutely aware of the fact that people generally believe that we know all the animals and plants to science, but that is a, a myth in itself. I mean, just before we decided to record this morning, I, I did a quick uh, trawl around the internet and, and there are animals just in 2017. Um, here's a list of amazing new species, new to science. So there's um, a newly discovered species of shrimp. A shrimp. Um, okay, that's quite small. There's a luminescent sea star, um, which has been found off the Australian coast. Uh, the nocturnal white ball, Akari, which was found in the Jiangju River in um, Brazil. There's a thing called the faceless fish, uh, found by um, uh, a research ship at a depth of 4,000 meters. Um, flicking on through, that's a, an orangutan new species, the Tapanuli. Um, cobalt blue tarantula, and the list goes on and on and on. It's, it's, it's actually quite remarkable, the number of species that we know absolutely nothing about. Yes, and that's just uh, a lot of those species you, you were terrestrial, weren't they? And actually, you could say that on any deep dive in the sea, in a new area of the sea, you would be guaranteed to find something new. They tend to be small. They tend to be, uh, you know, jellyfish and, and um, sea stars and sea cucumbers and, and quite esoteric creatures that we don't really know day to day. But um, nevertheless, there is tons, absolutely tons, as you say, to be learned about the 90% of the 70% of this earth that we don't really know. Yeah, and the biggest mammal in the world, the um, the blue whale, lives in the oceans now. Albeit we see it, it comes to the surface to breathe, etc., etc., etc. But what's your what's your view, John? Using your imagination and and your scientific hat as well about the fact that we have yet still to discover some enormous creature that never comes to the surface and and lives and lurks down in the deep. 
I'm sure they're there. Uh, they're probably things like squid. We, 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 there's another species of squid we found recently, uh, Colossus squid. So the Colossus squid is, is found in the Antarctic. And a lot of the things, new things that we have found are under the Antarctic ice shelf, where we've only just started to explore. And they found the colossal squid, which is um, heavier, I think, than the than the giant squid, but not quite as long. So that's yet another example of a large squid that lives in the deep and may have been the legends for these things like the krakens. Most of the stuff that's in the deep doesn't ever really come up to the surface waters, although at night it will migrate upwards uh, as the darkness allows it to sort of escape its potential predators and things like that. It comes up at night. But the fossil record of the deep sea is fascinating. I mean, ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and megalodon, the, the, the gigantic shark, relative of the great white shark. Yes, the, you're right. In the past, there's been some extraordinarily big things. And Meg, let's talk about megalodon, which uh, it has a jaw that you could easily walk into. And it was a whale eater. And we know that because uh, we find... Uh, both the teeth of Megalodon, which are as big as your palm, uh, palm of your hand, and we find the bones of whales with the teeth marks from Megalodon in them off Florida. And you know what? They're only 10,000 years old, so they became extinct about the time of the mammoths, and they must have been awesome creatures. That, that niche is occupied today by uh, orcas or killer whales, which attack whales. But in the past, it was these giant sharks megalodon and the ichthyosaurs um <clears throat> looked like amazing creatures almost like giant swimming crocodiles didn't they john with big long snouts and very uh, many plentiful uh, sharp teeth obviously going hunting probably big fish yeah i think we've been, we're going back in time quite a lot further than the megalodon we're i think in the jurassic when we're talking about ichthyosaurs and yeah, they were magnificent animals, maybe the source of dragon legends, uh, because they found fossils of them occasionally. In England, you find them off the coast of Charmouth in Dorset. And uh, large animals like that, they need a huge amount of food. And so you would expect them to be in places like the sea, which are vast and, and have huge food supplies for large animals. Basically, that's one of the fallacies of the Loch Ness Monster. Maybe that Loch Ness doesn't have the resources to feed a large animal, but the sea certainly does. The sea certainly does, and it, it reminds me of a program that I made for uh, BBC Radio 4 many years ago, um, and it was on the subject of giant sea serpents. And, of course, uh, again, if you, if you just do a bit of research on the Internet on giant sea serpents, there are many... Uh, uh, sightings and discoveries going right back to the 16th century. There's a description of a, a sea serpent in an ancient Nordic script written by a, a holy man, and you would expect a, a holy man to be telling the truth. Um, then the Gloucester Sea Serpent of 1641 is a, another um, description off the coast of Boston, someone describing a 90-foot-long sea serpent. The 19th century, there are r reports of uh, someone suggesting a plesiosaur. Of course, we have Nessie. And the thing that struck me about the, the interviews that I did, um, these were some contemporary accounts of people, one man standing on a beach describing uh, what he saw as a giant sea serpent. And, and, of course, the problem with a lot of these sightings is no photographs, uh, no video footage nowadays. 
etc., etc., etc. But um, the, the the fact that there could still be big giant creatures like this out there, I think, is quite fascinating. Yes, I'd, can you hear that helicopter? Yes, I can. Uh, I'll let it go past. It could be the background submarine uh, engine, John, taking us into the deep. It could. Yeah, um, just to go back on the ichthyosaurs, I've just just realised now that they are older than the plesiosaurs. I mean, you, uh, people probably know these things as long-snouted, almost dolphin-like things, but they've got huge rows of teeth and a, a very long face, and they're much bigger than most of the present-day dolphins. And they lived here, it says, 250 million years ago they first appeared, and they did what the whales did um they think that perhaps they went onto the land and then came back again which um i don't know if you know but whales are secondary um marine creatures they actually their ancestors were lived on land and then they went back into the sea and they say the same thing happens here with ichthyosaurs and then uh, then they became they were overtaken in the jurassic by the plesiosaurs which i've always thought are fairly similar looking beasts What's the difference between an ichthyosaur and a plesiosaur? Anyway, uh, <laughs> a lot of flesh, so, I think. A lot of flesh, but this, but this has meant that people have thought that uh, they exist uh, even today, or something similar could exist even today. Although there's not been much evidence, and as you say, the sea serpent stories are a bit sketchy, aren't they? I wonder will we become secondary mammals and eventually make our way from land back to the sea? Because of course, land is becoming. Uh, in short supply, the sea levels are rising, the population is growing enormously, hence the idea of, of us in our little novelette moving in under the water to exploit the oceans on a different habitat. Well, we, we have got a lot of um, things that are about us which make us, uh, some people think that we were water dwellers, and I believe that we have gills um, when we develop in, in the womb, and we... Uh, the fact that we're naked may also have something to do with uh, our aquatic ancestry. So we may be really the aquatic ape. I think there's a, quite a lot of evidence that that's true. But going back to the sea in the near future, we wouldn't evolve or change as individuals, but we would use technology to, to live there. Why we might want to do that is is because we might have to, uh, if this um, global warming is as serious as it looks, we may be living in a planet which is not able to sustain life, at least uh, not at the equator, um, because it's so warm. And we might have to live underwater. And that would involve taking all our food supply and everything underwater. So there are people experimenting right now with things like greenhouses underwater, uh, with some success, actually. There's a project in Italy that's doing it, and they're growing vegetables underwater in the shallows, sort of about 10 meters down and in domes and these domes uh, retain the water the fresh water that's inside them which uh, is uh, in some areas fresh water is obviously in, in short supply and of course that means that you could um you know both solve the issue of a warmer climate and recycling water by growing vegetables and and some of our food underwater which takes me neatly to the uh, little uh, spacecraft, underwater, whatever we want to call it, submarine vehicle uh, that I've named Aurelia. Aurelia is the scientific name of a species of jellyfish. Um, although the idea of it moving slowly and pulsatingly isn't isn't the idea that I had. So maybe we should choose a different name. I think you uh, suggested Barracuda, which I think is a great name. 
And then the name that I chose for the, the underwater station is um, Obelia. Obelia is a colonial hydroid and something that I saw in my very early days studying zoology. John, I'm sure you've seen the original Obelia, have you? Yes, it, as you say, it's this long, it looks like a long-legged uh, animal with a kind of cone-shaped body. And uh, it's one of the primitive things, isn't it, the hydroids? But it's, but it's, you know, I, li I just like the idea of colonies of people living in a, uh, and obviously it would probably be some kind of a structure that is going to have pods and things in it. So, um, yeah, no, I, li I, I do, I do like that. I, I, I find the Aurelia and the Belia might be a bit confusing. It's like you know, even the people that lived in it might get confused. It's like, shall we go? Back? <laughs> I'd like to stick with the name of Obelia for the uh, the station, but. I think Aurelia, we could probably think of a, of a of a different name for the the craft. Let's talk a bit about the craft because, in my imagination, it's not cramped. Uh, it's not, you know, you've described in a previous podcast going down to the depths. Very privileged thing to do, but you're in a submersible which had four people and it was very cramped and claustrophobic. I just love the idea of us having the technology, and let's not think too um, much about the practicalities of it at this stage where there's lots of space and you can actually sit and go deep without worrying too much about all the technicalities and think what it is that you could do. I mean, imagine if you were able to, as in this script, observe um, sperm whales hunting giant squid. Yes, it, it, it would be nice to have a craft that could move as agilely as a dolphin. Is agilely a word? I don't know. But um, anyway, so... Um... Uh, it, that would be good. It does presuppose that you've invented a material that can cope with the pressure because the reason that we have small craft going down is because we need to make the walls of those craft incredibly thick to survive the pressure. If consider you had invented... that done, John. This is fiction. Yeah, okay, consider yeah, that yeah, yeah. to be done. <laughs> All right. It, which, it, which, which frees you up considerably, uh, and that's good. Um, I, I just... Um, you know, maybe people invent something that cleans the the blood of nitrogen pretty quickly, so you don't have to worry about the, that issue of the the bends. But all those things are pretty high tech. I mean, I think if we had to do it now in this century, which we might have to do, we might have to start thinking about it because of global warming. Uh, we would be using fairly known technologies, but it's really the will to do it. Actually, when Cousteau was doing it in the 60s, it was a bit of a novelty. It was it was quite good fun. There's a wonderful picture of, of Cousteau in his habitat with three bottles of wine, half open, half <laughs> full, uh, on the uh, on the table. And uh, he's smoking a cigar. And this is in the in the rarefied atmosphere of an underwater habitat. And you think, what could possibly go wrong? They're, they're partly drunk and they're smoking. <laughs> he was a man of great class, wasn't he, really? He was well he was. ahead of his time. He was. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, you, you're right. I mean, I think that um, to to make this work as a story, you need to have a, a plot which drives it and a, a reason. It's quite interesting to look at some of the other books that have been done on this. There's The uh, Deep Range, which was 1957, Arthur C. Clarke. And The Deep Range is about living underwater um, in a time where they have to get food from the sea to a greater degree than ever before. And they have started to fence off areas of the sea with big sonar fences, which stop whales passing into areas where they're cultivating plankton, because otherwise the whales would eat it. But they're also, I think, farming the whales, which is, uh, this is 1957. Yeah, so great year, 1957, by the way. 
<laughs> the year I was I know, born. I can't think why. I can't think why. Um, uh, uh, but what is extraordinary is that uh, Arthur C. Clarke, as, as you know, is the man who first mentioned the use of satellites to uh, for communication around the world. So he was way, way ahead of his time and pretty spot on in most of his inventions. And he had the idea of putting nuclear reactors to heat up the seabed into the sea in the deep range plot. And uh, why would he do that? Well, that would make hot currents come up to the surface, and those currents would take with them nutrients. If in the open ocean, there's hardly anything that you, that's in the open water. It's very, very clear, like being in space. And, and the reason that happens is because everything falls to the bottom, including mm. all the fertilizer and nutrients you need for plants. So in Arthur C. Clarke's book, he has this idea of pulling it all up to the surface and fertilizing the water and making everything much more productive and uh, that still holds up that idea which is why in places like the galapagos on these uh, volcanic islands where the the currents uh, uh when they come up across mountains under the sea uh they upwell and bring all the nutrients up to the surface that's absolutely right i'm glad you mentioned that and also on a seasonal basis when the deep water warms slightly the same thing happens as in arthur c clark's nuclear reactors although whether putting nuclear reactors in would be a totally practical proposition probably not but uh, but it's worth uh, as you say it's imagination isn't it arthur c clark is interesting because he uses both imagination and plausibility which is what we've been discussing um and one of the reasons that book hasn't dated is because he isn't really talking about technology too much he's talking about human relationships of of people living underwater and uh, those things are eternal they they never change which brings us to one of the points that any um writer or author of of science fiction comes to when they go to new and unexplored worlds who goes what kind of people do you put down there um and uh, you know you're absolutely right in terms of plot points about characters so in in our world john who who's going to go down there how many People will it hold? Will they all be scientists? Will they be ordinary Joes who uh, volunteer to go down? What do you think? Uh, it's interesting. I was uh, listening to someone the other day on the radio. It must have been an archive because it was way back when they were recruiting people for being Spitfire pilots in World War Two, And they had two basic questions that they asked them. The first one was, have you ever owned a motorbike? And the second one was, do you still own a motorbike? <laughs> and the answers they were the answers they were looking for were yes to the first question yes i have owned a, a motorbike so i i understand the thrill and the danger of it and two no i don't still own it because i've become cautious and sane and i don't use such dangerous equipment anymore so and they wanted yes so, to both questions yes yeah, so they wanted someone they wanted were looking for an all-rounder someone who was both daring and yet uh, sensibly cautious. <laughs> so you've you've worked with a lot of people who have worked underwater, John, professionally as scientists or as film camera uh, people. Um, are they a, a special type? I could tell a diver probably uh, uh, to some extent. I'd have to, to sit with them for a while. But um, for instance, the divers that took the people out of the caves in uh, Thailand recently, and I've seen them on television, and they are all exactly the types that I know. They're very focused, very uh, one-tracked 
on their equipment and on the procedures they have to do to keep themselves alive. Cave diving is probably the extreme form of diving because there's no room for error whatsoever. It's pretty little room for error normally in diving, but in cave diving, you're dead if you, you don't think it through properly. So they're very fastidious people, a lot of them. I, I mean, I hesitate to say that you'd need a more balanced population than that. There have been uh, studies of, of the groups of people that you put together and uh, some of the things that happen in Aquarius, which is that um, underwater habitat, the only one that I know of that's in existence uh, in regular use called Aquarius off Florida. NASA put, put uh, training astronaut crews in there to make sure that they're psychologically OK and that they understand what long periods of isolation and living in confined spaces can do to you. And do you know what and, the answer to that question is? Well, um, most people get along. Uh, I think they become slightly quieter, a little bit more reticent to um, talk to each other and to reveal themselves. And uh, they write in they they gave the one in one study that was done. They they gave them journals and they had to write all the things they felt about, it, and then they analysed what they were writing about. And it tended to be more sort of mundane things about living rather than uh maybe more imaginative things that you would have um thought about when you were, didn't have the stresses of trying to keep alive in those environments so really not too different from what you might expect but all doable and um after a period of time people came round to a normalized way of living together they they're doing they're doing this for the trip to mars because as you know we're, we're going to go to mars and they are aware that you'd have people in close proximity and confined spaces for long periods of time and they're going to choose people that don't go bonkers but um i think reassuringly some of the studies show that that people can manage it i'd be fascinated to know what they'd make of me and whether they'd sent me or not i'm probably too old now at 62 but the bottom line is i'm very chatty and i'm very sociable i could get everybody a laugh every now and again i think laughter and humor is a bit important don't you Oh, absolutely. Uh, did, I think Buzz Aldrin, uh, the second man on the moon, I think he went back into space in his 70s, didn't he? Oh, um, right. There's, there's hope for me yeah. yet. Yes. Uh, yes, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, although living underwater might be a bit more strenuous. Um, what are you implying? <laughs> well, I, I don't see many divers who are in their <laughs> late um, 60s or early 70s. Um, and... Um, I hope there are lots anyway. of people that are listening to you now write in and tell you. So, listen, let's go back yeah. to Aquarius, which is the name of this amazing uh, craft off the coast of Florida. Tell me a bit more about it. How deep is it? How did you get down there? What's it like inside? Well, Aquarius is uh, a very good facility for science research, and it's a large tube, essentially. I think it was built in the 50s, and uh, it accommodates, I think, at least six people. And it has dormitories at one end of it, and it has a common mess room in the middle. And then it has uh, the ability to have an airlock, but I don't think it's used all the time. And then at the other end, it has a moon pool. And moon pools are, you've seen these in, in films, basically an exit to the sea, a direct exit to the sea. So this is a habitat where you are at ambient, temp and at ambient pressure. And you, you go into this moon pool, and basically you 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 come up the side of the craft and you're in the sea and so 
it's an ex- it has it has to be monitored twenty four seven from a control room which is based in Key Largo in Florida, and it has a lot of support and obviously food and air has to come from the surface, and so um, you know it's quite a complicated operation to keep that going. How deep is it? It's only at about twenty meters or about sixty feet, um, but that's enough to make a big difference because if you're a diver and you're studying things like coral reefs, which are, are there in, uh, I think it's Penacamp um, National Park. If you're a, an ordinary scuba diver, you have to keep coming up because your tank will only last for an hour, and you can maybe just do two dives a day. So your productivity is not wonderful. Uh, so living there, when you're at the ambient pressure and your body's acclimatized to it, you can stay there 24-7. You can be outside you know, four or five hours a day studying your corals, and then you just come back into the uh, into the vessel, which is at the same pressure as you were when you were in the water. The only thing you have to be really careful of is not to go too shallow, because then you'll start getting the bends. And when you want to come up, you have to go through a, a decompression regime, which can take the best part of a day to come back to the surface. Why were you there, John, and how long were you there for? I was filming for a series called Animal camera which was novel ways to film things and one of the ways was to stay on a coral reef for 24 7 and we went down when we filmed it for only 80 minutes because if you're if you're there for more than 80 minutes you start to get into a situation where you have to do long periods of decompression to come up but that was enough to get some really interesting imagery we did things like film people through the porthole from the outside so you could see them cooking inside and, and doing all the things that people do and and uh, so we also did that at night as well, where it was really spooky. We went under underneath it. There's some very big fish. Anything that's sitting there on the seabed attracts attracts interest from fish. And uh, so you know, it was uh, interesting to see. But really, you'd want some mobility there. You would want to move that station around to some of the interesting spots in the world, because a lot of the sea is is barren on the bottom. But there are some real hot spots where you'd like to study it for long periods of time, and that's where you should move these underwater habitats. Who owns the oceans? Who owns the, the seabeds? The ocean seabeds are usually owned by the country, uh, so there's various rights, like mineral rights. In the USA, uh, the government will sell off blocks of seabed to you uh, if you want, if you're an oil company and you want to prospect uh, but they will only do so for about 20 years or so. And they also um, analyze what chances there might be of hydrocarbons there. And the price varies accordingly. So I think a couple of square miles, you know, might be $20 million for, for 10 years uh, if it's got some potential oil in it. And if it's not really got any potential, then, you know, it might be, uh, you know, a tenth of that price. So look, you, you might not know the answer to this, but this is fascinating. But so are all the oceans of the world and the seabeds are they all divided up and is it all owned by countries or are there some parts of the of the oceans that are not owned it comes under the law of the sea which uh, originally was uh, made to protect the coastlines of of countries and it was originally uh, i think about three miles which was the shot of a cannon that it was calculated on which is obviously not a very practical measure and nowadays uh, countries uh, require i think 12 miles at least and some go out to 200 miles uh, of uh, ownership beyond their country's coastline 
And then after that, you have basically International Sea, which uh, nobody really owns, I think, and which, um, you know, in theory belongs to the, everyone in the world. So it's all to play for. And in our novelette, audiobook, call it whatever you want, we're bound to have some kind of political intrigue over who owns what, particularly if something interesting has been discovered. Yes. Do you know, um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to discuss was what is its plot? You know, the, the various plots that have been used by people like Jules Verne and so on um, are, you know, there's a big creepy animal down there that nobody's ever seen before and it comes and eats something. Uh, the Kraken myth, basically. Um, another one would be uh, that there is some form of ancient life like Atlantis, the city, um, and has remained undiscovered until now. And uh, another one would be like in 2001, where basically the explorers go mad um, and um, they become something else that, uh, and they learn something sort of um, ethereal about the sea. <laughs> it could be any of the above or it could be a new type of plot. But uh, um, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I... I... You and I have uh, um, uh, the, the knowledge of two zoologists. Um, we have, uh, I think, pretty good imaginations. We've worked together. Uh, we have ability as broadcasters. Uh, you've produced lots of television programs. I've produced lots of radio. You've done radio as well. So um, in, a, in a roundabout answer to your question, um, the, the, the real thing that attracts me to this idea is the fact that we just write an opening salvo and see where it takes us. Um, in our past, John, we have been fascinated by the original Conan Doyle novel of The Lost World. And then, of course, when The Lost World was also um, written by Crichton to bring it up to date to find uh, dinosaurs on various uh, islands and things like that, there is something intriguing about the past and those creatures which were huge and enormous um, and very special being brought into, you know, contemporary day living. And, and I'm really fascinated, I guess, more by the creatures than by the technology. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the idea of us going as deep as we can and maybe even deeper. Maybe there are oceans and habitats be below the floor which aren't uh, just so hot that you couldn't live that we find a fauna and a flora, which is just beyond our wildest imaginations. And I love the idea as a potential writer to exploit that. Yeah, I think that's right. And and there are, um, you know, different forms of life. Uh, in fact, there's things called the brine pools, I think we, we might have discussed, which are super concentrated, salty areas of the seabed. And around them, there are mussels which uh, and other animals which live on hydrogen sulfide, not uh, the um, metabolisms that we know of on the surface. They sound like alien creatures, but in fact, it's thought that they may be one possible source of the origin of life on Earth um, and that things evolved from them rather than they've evolved from what's up at the surface. I mean, all fascinating stuff. The, the, uh, what I do know, though, is that all stories have to have a driver and they have to have an intrigue. So again, if you go back to the plot of um, of the, the the Deep Range by Arthur C. Clarke, he, his intrigue is that there's a spaceman who has had uh, a trauma in an accident and can't go back into space, but he's he's trying to be useful underwater in these new habitats. 
and of course that trauma comes and revisits him so there's some point of of um anxiety and uh peril which has to be resolved and that is the core of most stories basically you've got to know what you've got to want to know what happens in the end yeah and i think if you and i although we're not going to be characters in this john uh we are however characters in the discussion of this podcast and obviously what i've written in the end of this scene is that something with a gigantic eye is staring at us and absorbing what's going on so there's intrigue there so i'm obviously the imaginative zoologist who's going to discover a new species and you'll be the nerdy captain who's going to kick me back and say you can't go there because it's too pressurized or your blood isn't thick enough <laughs> or something like that. well you're right it's it, it the, the line of credibility is somewhere in the middle of those two things and that's the the trick isn't it it's the suspension of disbelief which uh on the one hand has some plausibility and isn't total fantasy and on the other hand has wonderful imagination <laughs> right i think that's enough for now we'll probably just go back to our desks and write part two yeah i, I guess so there may be a pause of several years <laughs> <laughs>